All right, kids ages three through pre-K uh, can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship and meet in the back. That is available to you if you're a parent. If not, uh, that, that's a place where kids in that age group can, can hear the gospel probably in a more developmentally appropriate way than listen to me, yap, yap, yap. Uh, if you want to take advantage of that, great. If not, don't worry. We're, we love kids here in this church. If you haven't gotten that already, um, it'll become apparent as the music dies down and you can actually hear them. So uh, for the rest of you, go ahead and open your Bible if you have it with you to the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 19 this morning. Um, If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The text is in your order of worship. It's in your bulletin. If you don't own a Bible, there's several on the back table. We have more. I would love for you to take that. That's our gift to you. Um, But it's good to have the, the passage in front of you so that you can hopefully see that I'm not making this stuff up. Um... So I said this in the, in the, kind of in our welcome, but I, I want to say it again. The, the thing is, is that all of us, to some extent, have some kind of presupposition about what church is supposed to be like, right? Whether we, whether we grew up in the church, whether we've even ever been in a church, we tend to have a presupposition. This is what church is like. Some of you have had that presupposition smashed in the last uh, 30 or so minutes. Um, but that, that's true of Jesus, too. We, we all think we know what he would do, what he would be like, what he would say, who he would be around. People always have thought that. Generally, what we think that Jesus would be about is what we're about, right? Because, I mean, well, it's obvious that what we're about are the really important things. Of course. Uh. Our passage this morning hits at that. You see, like I said, we're not the only ones who don't get Jesus, who don't understand Him, but at times He surprises us. Uh, people in His time didn't either. Uh, we, we have certain ideas about who should get His time, who He came for, who He would be with. But today we see a surprising Savior. So if you have your place in Luke 19, our habit here is to stand uh, as the Scriptures read for the sermon. So if you'd stand in honor of God's Word, we're going to be reading... Verse, verses 1 through 10 in chapter 19. Uh, let's all be aware of something. This is a pretty familiar passage. If, if you've ever been in church or, or, or grown up in the church, this is a pretty familiar passage, which means it's dangerous. Because it's dangerous that we could just kind of let it pass over us and, and not get it, not hear it, because we think we know it. And so what I'd encourage us all to do this morning is what our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, tells us is to add faith and, and even love to our hearing of Scripture read and preached so that it might become effectual for us. Let's try and hear it again as if it were the first time. This is God's Word. He, that is Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He is gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, Half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. 
This is God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, we have all come into this place with different stories. Um, some of us are just wondering how long we got to sit here. Others of us are, are eager. We need you to meet with us. We, we all need the same thing, though. We all need your gospel. We need your presence. We need your power by the Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray for all of those things right now. We pray that you would come and that you would preach to us your gospel. That the one who speaks would fall away. That it would be Jesus that comes to the fore. We, we pray that through that, your, your presence would be felt by the power of your Spirit. That you would soften our hearts to receive you. Open our ears and our eyes. That we may see the wonders of who you are. And what you've come to do. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat, please. Well, like I said, in, in church circles, this is a pretty familiar story, right? Uh, maybe you've heard it before. Even if you haven't heard the story, maybe you've at least heard of Zacchaeus. Or at least you know that he was a wee little man, right? Which, I mean, how patronizing is that, by the way? Like, that song is so patronizing. It's, it's like a microaggression against short people. Um, anyway, the problem with familiar stories, like I said, or even familiar characters, we, we miss the impact of them. We... We miss the impact of them because we've grown numb to them. And then as we read this story, there's the problem of cultural distance. Because some of it just seems bizarre to us of why some of these things would be a big deal. Did you notice that? I mean, think about it. Like, what is the big deal about Jesus hanging out with a short dude who collects taxes? And why is Zacchaeus so excited about a dinner guest? And then we have this churchy talk about seeking and saving the lost and all the baggage that comes forward with that for some of us because we've, we've, maybe you've grown up in this area which is you know, still part of the Bible Belt and that's, that's language that tends to be thrown out and then used as a way to control people. All that churchy talk. Well, the good news is, is that my guess, and, and I think looking around, this is probably true. Y'all, y'all are too smart uh, to, to be lulled into numbness about the story and way too curious, to, curious uh, to, to not want to learn about bridging that cultural distance. So, so as, as, as far as the churchy talk goes, my, my promise is that this will actually mean something you don't expect. So stay, stay tuned. We're, we're going to look at this passage in three ways this morning. Um, if you're new to Holy Cross, we always put an outline in the bulletin. It's that little white piece of half, half sheet of white paper in there. You can use that if you want. If not, just leave it. We're going to look at a surprising visitor. Uh, we're going to look at a surprising visit, and then we're going to look at a surprising salvation, okay? Let's start with a surprising visitor. Look down at verses 1 to 4. So Jesus is traveling through the city of Jericho. Uh, if, you're, if you're not familiar with the story of the Bible, that's the, that's the city that's famous for um, the walls falling down when the Israelites blew their trumpets and screamed really loud. Clearly, that engineer did not graduate from tech, okay? So, anyway, we're, we're told that, the, that in, in this city, there's this dude named Zacchaeus. And here's what we're told about him. We're told that he's a tax collector. Actually, we're told more than that. He's not just a tax collector. He's a, he's a, um, a manager. Uh, the, the, the original says that he's a, the, the head, the chief tax collector. Now, that doesn't mean much to us, but let me help you understand how this worked. During Jesus' day, in, first, in the first century, Israel is an occupied nation. Occupied, as in, they are under the control of Rome, and Rome keeps control by having garrisons of soldiers around to keep, not just the peace, but to make sure that Israel understands that it's occupied, which means that those soldiers kind of had carte blanche to do whatever they wanted to the people, and they did. So they are an occupied nation. 
And in, the, in this region, they have to collect taxes. But the collection of taxes is not a government position. It's privatized. Some of you are all like, yes, we should do that. Okay? So it's, it's privatized. It's a contracted position. Some of you are contractors. You know how that works. Basically, they, the person who gets the position is the one with the best bid. Okay? The best bid to the regional governor. So what you would do is you would bid for the opportunity to collect taxes from the people because... You would want to do that because everything over what you bid to go to the governor goes to you, and you can charge basically whatever you want. And the soldier standing next to you makes sure that you get it. Now, think with me on this. What you have is basically government-sponsored extortion. Like real extortion. I know some of y'all are like, yeah, that's what we got too. No, this is real extortion, okay? Now... Zacchaeus isn't just a tax collector. That would have been understood to be bad enough. He's a a, a manager, a chief tax collector, which scholars will tell you that word is never used in in, in other material. In other words, like Luke, who's writing this in the first century, kind of made that term up to somehow describe Zacchaeus' position. What it probably means is that not only was he a tax collector, but he had a little pyramid scheme going, right? Where he had other tax collectors under him. He took a cut of what they got, and of course they were charging more than what they needed, and then he took his cut and bid it out to, to the regional governor. Now, here's the kicker. Zacchaeus is Jewish. This means that Zacchaeus is contracted with his Roman occupiers to extort his own people to make himself rich. And apparently, from what Luke tells us, it worked. Because the original doesn't just say he's rich. There are words for that. It says he is full, which means he is really rich. This dude's got Quan, all right? This is not the guy that you were happy to see when you pass him on the street, right? He is very rich. He has made his fortune literally extorting his own people. Today, what we would think is a combination between like a slumlord, a crooked politician, and a mobster. That's basically what you have in Zacchaeus. So Jesus is coming to town. And Zacchaeus wants to see him. The problem is is that he can't get through the crowds to see him. You can understand why, right? Y'all are lining up to see the Jesus parade coming through. I don't know exactly what that parade looked like, but the Jesus parade is coming through and everyone's lining the streets. And wee little Zacchaeus is like a little Tyrion Lannister trying to get through and he's trying to push his way through the crowd. And, and they're like, nuh-uh. Like, you get my money, but you're not getting my spot. And so they're, they're pushing him out. And so, um, so he climbs a tree. Now, that doesn't mean much to us. But again, in the first century, a little bridge in the cultural gap, that would have been scandalous, right? Because in the, in the first century, in the Near East, that's an honor-shame culture. Um, the honor-shame culture means that you public face, public perception is king. And grown men wearing robes, robes, do not climb trees. Okay, the only thing that would drive Zacchaeus to do this quite frankly, as if he had nothing left to lose. He's literally desperate to see Jesus. Now, we're not entirely certain why. We could speculate, but we don't know. But he is desperate. 
But now let's look at the unexpected guest. Look down at verses 5 to 6. Like I said, Jesus is passing by the sycamore tree, which um, in, in, case, in case maybe you're, maybe you're here this morning and you doubt the scriptures, you doubt the Bible, you're like, I, I, this is, these are neat stories, but they can't possibly be true. The, the idea that, that we're talking about a sycamore tree here is one of the reasons scholars will point at passages like this and say that this is evidence of eyewitness testimony. Because you see, details like that are normal for us. We read them in all of our books. In the ancient world, they weren't normal. You didn't put details in like that. They're random. Why? Why the random mention of a sycamore tree? Like, who cares? Well, that's the kind of details that eyewitnesses would include. Be like, you know, and then he climbed up this, what was it? It was a sycamore tree. You know, and it's random, but it's there. Anyway, so he's passing by. Jesus is passing by. He stops under the tree, and he looks up, and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry down, for today I must remain in your house. Okay? Now, again, don't be lulled into the humor of Jesus talking to the short dude in the tree. This is like Jesus talking to Whitey Bulger or Al Capone. Or someone like that and saying, dude, I have got to stay with you today. I love this. This is awesome because of what it isn't to me. What it isn't is Zacchaeus looking down and saying, Jesus, Jesus, please, would you come over to my house? I need to be with you. Can you please come? And this isn't Zacchaeus reaching out for Jesus, is it? He's just standing up in a tree. Robe flapping in the breeze. Don't think about that too much, right? He's just standing up in the tree. I'm not exactly sure what motivated him to climb the tree, but I, I can be sure of this. He did not expect that to happen. He did not expect Jesus to stop, look up, and move into his life. That was not on his radar screen. Zacchaeus just wanted a look. He didn't expect anything more, and Jesus is coming to stay. Now, before I move off of this, let me just say... That some of you are here this morning, and you might be exactly where Zacchaeus was. Right? Your life is jacked up bad. And you're here this morning, maybe, maybe you're here simply, or maybe you're here because someone promised you a free lunch, right? And you're like, I got, I'm here to do the lunch thing, this is, my, this is my payment, the hour and a half here. Maybe that's true, but some of you are here because you just want to catch a glimpse of Jesus. But you would never believe that he would even stop to look at you, better yet, come to stay. Let me simply say this. If Jesus could move towards Zacchaeus, who during his day was the most outcasted outcast, the most, in terms of the people that he was around, there was no one worse. And if Jesus could move into his life, it is very likely he's doing the same with you this morning. Yeah, yeah, I, I know, you're a special case. I'm sure Zacchaeus thought he was too. And that brings us to the attention this little event garners. Because I love the way Luke puts it. Jesus says to him, um, hurry down uh, and, and, and come and hurry down. And, and Luke says he, he came and hurried down. Like it's, he does exactly as Jesus says. And, and he goes off and prepares for Jesus in his house. And suddenly people start grumbling. And of course they do. We would too. Don't. And, and don't, like, some of y'all just looked at me with a face like, Mm-mm. yes, you would have. I would have. Of course you would have. See, these people are no different than us. They believe, like we do, uh, whether you're a Christian or not, this is something that we tend to believe, that our problem as a people is moral. And that if our problem is moral, and if that is the case, then, then Jesus just decided to hang out with the worst of the worst, and that's not the way God's supposed to work, is it? It's not the way God works. But see, Jesus never seems to hang out with who we think he should. They go, look, 
he has just gone off to be the guest of a sinner. And now let's, let's be clear on something before we get to the wrong, the wrong idea. These folks knew that no one was perfect. Okay? They knew that no one was perfect. So when they say it's a sinner, they weren't saying they weren't. But, but these aren't the uber-religious folks saying this. This is the rank and file. But like us, they tended to think, well, there's sin, and then there's, well, then there's sin. Right? I mean, there's sin, and then there's, well, <laughs> then there's those people. We put everything on a spectrum, right? There's what we do, and that tends to be over here on the spectrum. There's what we do, and then there's those people, and they do stuff over there. And it's all like, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm not those folks. Right? And then those folks over here, now, they've got their spectrum, too. And some of y'all, some of y'all are like, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. I know, right? And you have your spectrum, too. And you're like, well, I'm not those people. But I'm not those people, either. Everything's on a spectrum. And what we tend to think is that God overlooks what we do, but not so much those people. Right? And now some of y'all look into your neighbor. You need to stop, okay? Like, I saw you. Don't think you... You know what I'm talking about. We all do this. We think there are sins, and then there are sins. And Zacchaeus was obviously on the wrong side of the spectrum to these folks. Jesus wouldn't want to be near him. He shouldn't want to be near him. Better yet, be his guest, because he's one of those people. But listen to me. The Bible has no such spectrum. The Bible has no such category. According to the Bible, we are all those people. Every one of us. But see, we, we have that spectrum because what we want to do is we want to look to our right and our left. That's why some of y'all are looking at your neighbors. And we want, to, we want to compare ourselves to others. We want to look at what others, how they're doing. But the Bible tells us that the standard isn't other people. It's God. Your life may look great compared to mine. In fact, I'm sure it does. I'm a mess. Like, it may look great. But compare it to God and see what happens. So whether your life looks very pretty or like Zacchaeus, can I tell you that before God, we're in the same position. All of us. So that's the surprising visitor. Now let's look at what happens once he gets in the house, okay? Think with me for a moment. You're, You're... Probably, I think this is fair to say, the most despised person in all of Jericho. Right? I mean, you're not one of the occupiers. They're bad. But you're actually one of us who's working for the occupiers, using the occupied dude's power to make yourself rich. Like, that's bad. Right? So, here's, you're, you're one of those despised and notorious people in your city. Everyone knows you because you are that guy. And you've heard stories about this dude walking around the countryside proclaiming God's favor to people and welcoming people into God's family. But you can't imagine that could be true of you. I mean, you've you've messed it up. You messed it up royally. Like, there's messed up, and then there's you. God could never really care for you, couldn't welcome you, couldn't want to be with you. Maybe that's not really hard for you to imagine. Um, Now imagine that Jesus picked you out of a crowd. A crowd that was so thick with people you couldn't get to the front of the line. You had to climb a tree. And Jesus picked you out of the crowd and he said he wanted to be with you in your house. What would be your reaction? Because Zacchaeus apparently went crazy. Look down at verse 8. He says, Behold, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, again... 
We've, some of us heard the story so many times that that just drifted over you. Please don't let it. Listen to what he said, because this is a radical response. Okay, so like I said, Zacchaeus is Jewish, right? The Old Testament, if you were to read it, and, and read, it's in the, it's in the details, it's, so just trust me on this. If, if you were to read what the Old Testament says, and look at what Zacchaeus did, did what you would see is that this, the standard that the Old Testament set for, for the giving to the poor and for the uh, restoring what you've defrauded is nowhere near what Zacchaeus just did. The Old Testament law did expect that you gave to the poor. It's like 10%, right? There was the 10% that you gave to the worship of God, and then there was the other 10%. Sorry, folks. There's the other 10% that you were giving to the poor. The Old Testament law also had this thing called restitution that you should pay if you swindled someone. Because basically what you would do is if you swindled someone, you paid back what you, what you swindled plus 20% interest. Now, let's, let's do the math here. He just gave 50% of everything he owned to the poor. And then he said, if I've defrauded anyone, I will give it back four times. In other words, 300% interest. This isn't a little change, is it? Because this guy who was standing in the tree made his living, made his wealth, made a fortune off of preying upon people. And all of a sudden now, he's just given it away. Something has happened to him, something incredible. Jesus has taken notice of him. Jesus has come to his house, and a radical transformation has resulted from that. Because the people in the crowd weren't the only ones who thought that Jesus shouldn't be with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus thought that Jesus shouldn't be with Zacchaeus. He knew that. He knew that Jesus didn't belong there. He knew that he didn't deserve Jesus' presence. He didn't deserve his friendship. And his response to that kind of grace is stunning. And thankfully for us, Jesus interprets this event for us because it would be easy to misunderstand. Look down at verses 9 and 10 because Jesus declares it there. He says, Today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. Now, this can be confusing, so stay with me because this is where our cultural assumptions tend to take over. This is where the way that we think God should be takes over because Jesus just used churchy words. He used things like salvation. And, but here's the thing. Before those became churchy words... Jesus used them, and he used them to mean something powerful. So stick with me a minute. I want to point out something. Jesus is interpreting what we just heard. He's interpreting it. We can be fooled into thinking that this declaration of salvation, salvation has come to this house, that, is, that that is a declaration in response to Zacchaeus' actions. In other words, that because Zacchaeus gave away half that he owed, because, or owned, because he paid back four times what he had swindled, that therefore Jesus is saying, well done. You are so good. Salvation. Right? We, we can think that. It's our normal assumption. I do good, I get good from God. Right? He's a Coke machine. Put in my 25 cents, push my button, get my blessing. But that isn't it at all. Jesus is telling us, he's not giving a response to what Zacchaeus has done. He's interpreting why Zacchaeus did it in the first place. He did what he did because salvation has come. Now, if you grew up in the church or been around the church a, a little bit, what you probably think when I say salvation has something to do with going to heaven when you die, right? That's part of it. But that's kind of a stunted way of looking at it. Because you see in the Bible, salvation means something more. It means something more like wholeness, like fullness, like being made right. 
Like there's something wrong with us and it is being set to rights, being restored to God. Now that implies something. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But right now, what I want to point out is something else. Jesus says that this has come, that this salvation has come, not that it has been achieved, right? Not that it's been accomplished, but this has come. So let me be clear on this. Jesus is saying two things, one of them kind of tongue-in-cheek, but the first one, the most important thing. Jesus is saying is that what is going on in Zacchaeus, what we see in this radical, radical response is just that. It is happening because salvation has come to him. Salvation wasn't earned. It wasn't accomplished. He hadn't done anything for it. It has come to him. Jesus is very clear. But second, like I said, Jesus is being slightly tongue-in-cheek because the coming, to salvation, to, the coming to, of salvation to Zacchaeus' house just happened to coincide with the coming of Jesus to his house, right? <laughs> the Bible is stubborn about this, friends, so, so listen close if you can. Salvation, being right with God, being made whole, is not something that you accomplish. This is what makes Christianity so u- unique. And in fact, what makes Jesus so important Right? Jesus is not the teacher of the way to salvation. He's not the kind of the bringer of the rules that get you to salvation. He is the way. Salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house because Jesus came to his house. Apart from Jesus, it couldn't have come. Because according to the Bible, there is no salvation apart from Jesus. Now, what I want to do now is just say two things by way of application, if you can. Uh, so if you checked out, check back in, because here's the important stuff. So, so two things by way of application, because I'm sure that more questions have been raised than answers. And there'll probably be just as many questions after we're done, let's be honest. But let's try and answer a couple. Because the first thing this passage does for many of us, if not all of us, is that it redefines lostness. Right, you caught that at the end of what Jesus said is kind of his interpretation. Salvation has come to this house, and at the end he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now here's the thing. We have a certain idea of what that word lost means, don't we? We tend to think it means immoral or irreligious, like someone who just kind of does their own thing. That's what we think. And that's because, like I said before, as a culture, if we believe that humanity has a problem, that problem is that uh, God wants something from us. He wants us to be good, and we're not good enough, right? And if we can just be good enough, then he'll be okay with us. And this is why, friends, listen close. This is why we struggle, especially if you're not a Christian, and you hear Christians talk about the, the exclusive claims of Jesus, and you go, well, wait a minute. What about the moral atheist? Or what about the moral Muslim? Or what about the moral Wiccan, for that matter? And we go, they're good too. They're probably, and you go, they're better than Christians. They probably are, by the way. But that is a question because this is what we think God wants. That God wants us to be good. And if that's what God wants, then Christianity is in trouble. Because there are plenty of people in the world, who don't believe anything about Jesus, who are way more moral than me and way more moral than most of you, right? But that is not what it means to be lost. It's just not. 
You see, the Bible says that our problem isn't morality. I mean, that's part of it. That's like a result of the problem. But our problem is independence. Because we were made for a dependent relationship with God. But by nature, not by what we do, but by who we are, we are now independent from him. We've betrayed him. We've turned away from him. That's what it means to be lost. Now, some of us do that. Some of us turn away and walk away from him by being really immoral. Like some of us here in this room and we're like that. We say to God, I don't want you. I don't want your way. I'm doing it myself. And and that's some of us here today, right? Now, maybe our immorality isn't on display for everyone because you did come to church, right? So you're you're hiding it well. But, but, uh, But we believe that if people knew us, they knew who we really were, that we couldn't possibly be loved because we're way out there. Like, if there's a spectrum, like we're, we're, right? So that's some of us. Others of us, though, my guess is looking around, this is probably many of you here. Others of us show our independence through our morality, through our religious observance. We say, I don't need you, God. I've got this. I'm pretty good. I got this set. I do the church thing. I do the prayer thing. I read my Bible every day. Like, really? And then, I've got this. And we look down on those whose lives are a mess. We think we're superior. Listen to me. The Bible says that both types of people are lost. Being lost is about being independent of God. And so this morning, friends, let me tell you this. If you are outside of a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ... I don't care if you say your prayers every night or hustle on the street corner. You are lost. Listen, I was a very moral deist at best. Till I was a freshman in college. And I was lost. We have got to understand that being lost is about being distant from God. And we can be distant from him because of running from him. Or we can be distant from him by slaving for him. But both are distant. But here's the good news, friends. Jesus didn't come to Zacchaeus' house because of all that Zacchaeus had going for him. Zacchaeus had nothing going for him. Nothing. He had no reputation. He had no morality. He had no religious observance. He had nothing. He had nothing but need. And that's all you need. Is need. And this is why, friends, Jesus is so central to Christianity. Because you, you, you can't have Christianity without Jesus. Because it is all about Him. It isn't about what you have done. Right? Jesus saves isn't a slogan thrown out at football games. You and I are lost. We are distant from God and we have betrayed Him. But Jesus came to live a perfect life before God that we can't. And to die to bear the weight of our betrayal. To bear the weight of our sin. To bear the weight of our independence. And this is, friends, that's what the cross is all about. Jesus had lots of better things to do on a Friday afternoon than hang on a cross and die, right? When we place our faith in Jesus, we are returning to dependence on God because Jesus is God's answer to our problem. Now, maybe you're thinking, as I say that, you're thinking, great, I just need to get things together first. Let me ask you a serious question. If that's what you're thinking, you're like, I got to get my life together first and then I can come to Jesus. Is that what you see here? Is that what you see in this passage? Like, Zacchaeus got his life together. How did he do that? He did that by climbing up into a tree before Fruit of the Loom was invented? Like, is that that how Zacchaeus got his life together? 
Dude is in a tree wearing a robe caring nothing about what other people are seeing. Right? All he needed was that need. Jesus said the same thing when he visited another tax collector's house named Matthew. It's in Matthew's Gospel. The same dude whose house he visited. It's in Matthew chapter 9 where people are grumbling too because he's hanging out and he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And they go, doesn't this guy know? And he says, look, he stops him. He says, oh, whoa, whoa. It's not the, the, the well who need a doctor. It's the sick. It's the sick who need a doctor. Friends, if you know you are lost this morning, if you know that you are sick, all you need is to come to Jesus. Because he makes you well. He brings you home. Jesus moved into Zacchaeus' life and suddenly he has radical change. Not the other way around. Zacchaeus didn't somehow radically change and Jesus said, you know, you're the kind of guy I want to have dinner with. Like it, it, It was completely opposite that. On the other hand, if you're here this morning and you don't think you need saving, you don't need to be sought, you think you're pretty well, then can I tell you something? Jesus didn't come for you. Jesus didn't come for people who think they're well or think they just need a little help up or don't really need to be sought or saved. They just they like, want to just hang out near Jesus. That's the very people that we're told over and over Jesus didn't hang out with. Sorry. I don't care if you've grown up in church, been religious all your life, or just think you're really, really good. And if you met Jesus, he'd think you're great. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He did not come to affirm the found. But, if you see yourself lost, maybe it's for the first time. Maybe like this morning, you hadn't ever seen it before, but right now you're thinking, you know, ah, <laughs> uh, maybe. Can I tell you, it isn't a coincidence you are here. Jesus is seeking you right now. Right now. Place your faith in him. He's enough. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do have a problem. And that problem is that most of us do not see ourselves as short little tax collectors. We see ourselves as pretty good people. Not in need of saving, just need of affirmation. Just need of the pat on the back. Need of the thumbs up from Jesus. Buddy Christ. Telling us that we're okay. But we're not. And Lord, if any of us are going to see that, whether we've been Christians for a long time and for some reason in the midst of our... Uh, since our, our coming to faith have since grown to think that now that I'm a Christian, I am really good. And Jesus is really lucky to have me. Or whether we're not a Christian at all and we're just thinking the same thing. Lord, we need to see our need. And we can't see it without you. So we ask even now, I ask you even now, would you open our eyes to our need so that we might run to the Savior who loved us, who sought us, is seeking us right now. For Lord, we give you praise because you did come to seek and to save the lost, lost people like me, like my friends here. Would you continue to do that? Not just in the lives of those gathered here, but in the lives of everyone that we meet. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.